Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Wither and I'm joined as always by my best man, Nick Dostal. How you doing there, future man? I'm excited to be here. Future man's mad. <laughs> How many active, trend-setting, brand-name directors do we currently have, especially in America? I'm talking about people who make original films, their brand names, Paul Thomas Anderson, David Fincher, Sofia Coppola, Chris Nolan... Aronofsky, Tarantino, the Coens, however long or short the list is, Wes Anderson is certainly on it. His films have such a distinct style, maybe more than any current living director. I mean, you can almost look at any single frame from a Wes Anderson movie and go, yep, I'm watching a movie by Wes. The specificity of his movies are what I love so much. The tailored tight costumes, the immaculate production design which really gets like better and better with every yeah. movie the crass and profane humor the title cards the playful title cards maybe more than any living filmmaker i think wes's films have a way of getting better and better the more times you watch them the last director we covered stanley kubrick the same could be said for him and that's because it's the craft when you watch these movies by such skilled craftspeople you keep discovering new things. There is so much packed into each of Wes Anderson's films that a throwaway off-camera line can end up being the most hilarious thing in a scene. But we're opening this up. Wes Anderson, when you see a film by Wes Anderson, we have one coming very soon in one week, The French Dispatch. When you see The French Dispatch, film by Wes Anderson, what does that do for you? I immediately think style color, props, panning shots, deadpan, funny dialogue, a very fun journey with people who make me smile. I feel like I'm going to have a good time, but I also feel like I know exactly what I'm in store for. Yeah. I know exactly what I have just bought a ticket for, and I'm going to get exactly what I paid for. You know, because when we put those expectations on a filmmaker... And it doesn't deliver to what we were, were expecting. We're going to get a lot into this in this episode. It can be a little, can rub us a little wrong. And this is a tricky director to bring expectations to for reasons, again, we'll get into. But my my first exposure to Wes, it's not very unique. It was Rushmore. That movie had, I, I don't know if you saw this movie in 1998 or like heard about it, but that movie was a fucking sensation in the winter of 1998. There was like a big indie movie a year, and that was probably that one. You know, one or two big indie movies a year. What a new voice. I had never seen anything like it. I was confused. I was stimulated. I was honestly a little turned off because the humor was way over my head, a little too sophisticated for me. And then about a year later, I, I watched Bottle Rocket for the first time. And Bottle Rocket was really my way in to Wes Anderson. And I've seen all these movies before, but I never watched all of them in order, which, you know, I did for this yeah. episode. And what a reward it was to trace those like humble beginnings and those themes and styles in Bottle Rocket. That shit's still paying off in Grand yes. Budapest or Isle of Dogs, like very, very much. And, you know, Bottle Rocket, we'll, we'll get into it. But when did you know you were going to like Wes Anderson? Not like, oh, I like that movie, but I like this director. Um, it took a bit. That's fair. Um, to be honest. Yeah. I, um, the first exposure I had to him was Royal Tannenbaums, mm -hmm. which I think I saw on video when it came out. So 2001, 2002. 
And I just remember not getting it. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know what I was watching. Was I supposed to laugh? Was I not? And I just, um, I, I pretty much cast it aside. And I, I think even as like a kid, I was like, I don't get what that was doing. Maybe not for me. I didn't hate it by any means, but I was, that's, that was my thought of it. Then I saw Rushmore and hated it. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! Mm-hmm. I did not like it. This is going to be a common all. theme, folks. Just like this is not a love fest. You're going to hear words like "didn't like," "hate." It doesn't mean that's what we're going to end on. But Mm-mm. these are tough movies to accept and fall into on first viewing, especially when we're young. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah, this this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode because this is not a Kubrick or Cassavetes love fest. We're like, great movie, love it, A+. It, this is going to be a little different, and that's okay. It's okay. And totally, it is, and I'm glad you said it too, because also, I also had an about-face complete 180 on so many of these. Mm-hmm. Um, so then finally, after that experience with Rushmore, I watched Life Aquatic in theaters. So that was my first Wes Anderson movie theater experience. That's when I changed my thoughts. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I it clicked because I maybe it was my experience of not getting the Royal Tannenbaums, not necessarily liking Rushmore, but then watching Life Aquatic, I dialed into what this director was doing and how he was doing it. And that's when I was like, oh, and then I went back and rewatched Royal Tannenbaums, loved it. Went back and watched Rushmore. Still have a little bit of issue with Rushmore, but liked it so much better than I did the first time. A lot of it is knowing that you can allow yourself to laugh because initially you're like, huh? Like, is this, I I mean, is this funny? Like, I, I don't, I don't get it. And you're seeing this, like, you're seeing in his first movie, just this, this guy with this spiky blonde hair who's like cooking up these 75 year plans. And you're like, what? What what am I watching <laughs> exactly? But if you don't know, like, oh, this is so absurd. It's supposed to be funny. Once I think that clicks in for you, yeah, you can appreciate the rest of his work. If it never clicks in, and it may not, yeah. If you don't find Wes Anderson films funny, you're not going to like his work because you have to inherently enjoy and appreciate the very unique sense of humor in all of these movies, all, all of them, even the animated ones. All of them. Yep. And I, I love you talking about your kind of introduction to Wes because it's just, we're going to have some really good conversations here. I, c- I can already tell. And I, you ready? Let's just get into let's it. Go, baby. Let's do something let's different. Go. Let's, start with Isle of, let's start with Isle of Dogs and work backwards. Just kidding. Oh, I was totally ready. <laughs> no. I was like, oh, fuck it. Let's go. No. First up, 1996, Bottle Rocket. This is a tiny indie movie. They made it for about $5 million. It's based on a short that Wes and his pal Owen Wilson made. The short got some attention, the feature gained a good festival following, and a few filmmakers took Wes and Owen under their wing, namely James L. Brooks, who helped them polish the festival cut for theatrical release, and Marty Scorsese, who said that Bottle Rocket was one of his top 10 movies of the 1990s, of the entire decade. Not bad praise, I might say. Uh, This movie's hilarious. It's written by Wes and Owen Wilson. It's about two friends, Anthony, Luke Wilson, and his dim but sensitive best friend, Dignan, played by Owen Wilson, pulling off uh, just absurd heists. They're running from the law. They're hiding out in motels. They're falling in love with women. They're being idiots. 
Um, <laughs> I've said this for years, and I even told you, because I believe you hadn't seen Bottle Rocket uh, before this episode, and I told you, the first 30 minutes of this movie, in my opinion, stand up with anything he's done. Because I think, <laughs> just the 75-year plan, Future Man's Mad, the library robbery, I think it's all an absolute riot. And I'm going to kick it to you by saying, this is still... Favorite Owen Wilson performance. I love him oh, in this movie. I think he, I nice. do not think he's been better. And I like Owen Wilson. Yeah, I have yeah. nothing against Owen Wilson. I don't think he's been better. And this is, this is still a very high ranking Wes Anderson movie for me. But it was your first time. What'd you think? So this is my first time watching it. And, and I had seen, like, even talking about before, like, my first experience, like, since then, I've grown to like Wes Anderson, but still have never seen this one. It was awesome to see what I know about Wes now and see in his very, very first outing the exact same things that have not changed over 20 years now. There's a certain quirk, um, a certain eye for individual props mapping. He loves maps. Like, 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 he loves them. Loves plans, them. just plans, plans. Uh, what, what, blueprints. He loves yep. that shit. All of it, and like the voiceover going over each one of those things. Yeah. And it's like, so you see it all here, and it's really refreshing for filmmakers to see that you know when you really dive into directors and you watch every single one of their films, you always find the exact same thing. These every director kind of does the same thing. And that's not a bad thing at all. But you just see like what they like, what their tastes are, their little like idiosyncrasy like um traits. And I love seeing that. It was very very refreshing to see that and I just I I love this movie to be honest. I Did you I and, I, did. and I, I I want you to be honest. Like did you yeah, did you like it because I honestly, when I sat up to watch it, I was like, oh man, I haven't done, I haven't done Bottle Rocket in a, fir- in a long time. And I was just delighted that I still loved it as much. Like, and I'm, I'm really happy to hear you did too. I didn't know if you would, you know? Oh no, I, I took to it immediately. I, 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 good, good. just the opening scene and he, I just love that he goes, I got to climb out the window. I got to go out this way. I got to do it. Doc. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 okay. The, the guy He's was like, like okay. all right. Like I, I, that was like right there. I was like, okay, I'm gonna like this. And from there, it was really off to the races. And you know, and I actually think after watching all of his movies, I think some of the sweetest, most tenderest moments were actually in this one. Oh yeah, the yeah. whole thing with Anthony and Inez, mm-hmm. that whole love relationship is one of the sweetest, most innocent relationships i've seen in any wes anderson movie wes is wes likes romance you can tell in his movies it's very like uh unique and not not necessarily romance we've seen a lot before but this is really convincing that this guy just like this kind of like aimless guy just falls in love with this made at a hotel i yeah it's really really sweet to me it's really great and then the third act you get that great kick of just james Kahn. Yes. In, who apparently had an absolute bl- James Conn, like not, you know, traditionally not the uh, easiest guy to work with, a bit mercurial, but apparently he just had a blast doing this. And, you know, it's a $5 million movie. They couldn't have given him too much money, but I think he just leaned into it and was like, all right, let, let's do it. It's great to watch him. And he's having a lot of fun in this. Like a You lot. can tell. It, you can feel it coming oh, yeah. off the screen. He's having a blast, like doing the karate 
with the guy in his mm-hmm. underwear. <laughs> and that's his real karate instructor in real life. That dude is like an, an, a black, black, black belt. I learned Amazing. that from the commentary. I, I watched all the movies with the, with the commentary on and Khan was like, I don't, cause they're in like their briefs and he's like, I, I, you know, I don't know if that's really respectful. And then the instructor was like, no, let's do it. It's fine. Let's go. One thing I want to just ask though, is it the greatest filmed heist fuck up? The the end, the end one, like the big, the big one at the end. Yeah. It's just, that's what's so funny is because you're watching people who, you know, from the beginning have no idea what they're doing, no, but they have these like. The amount of time Dignan has spent on planning is probably like as much time as I spent watching movies, and yet he's gotten no better at it. Like nothing. He's not good at it. He doesn't know how to execute something. But yeah, it's such that's what's so funny about it is that this isn't like this ain't Ocean's Eleven. This ain't some no. great like these are just idiots <laughs> who don't really know what they're doing. And that's that's the joy of it. That's what's so fun to watch. And it's not very easy to make a film about people who fail all the time. Yeah, <laughs> but they just uh, welcome to Wes Anderson. You know, it's great. It's well great. said. I love. That. It's not easy to make a movie about people who fail, and yet, like, it's true. This is exactly yeah. that. <laughs> so then, two years later. Wes has to do one of the hardest things in Hollywood, which is make a bigger, worthy follow-up to your indie debut. Today, when a director has a hit for their first movie, they end up directing like $200 million superhero movies next, and that's a tough thing to pull off scale-wise. We'll see how Chloe Zhao, the most recent Best Director winner, does when she releases The Eternals later this year. I'm rooting for her. But Wes's sophomore effort is... It's this Hollywood indie phenomenon titan of the late 90s. And this movie makes stars out of Wes, Jason Schwartzman. It gives a major career boost to Bill Murray. And Rushmore is now synonymous with the Wes Anderson brand. I can't really mention Bill Murray enough here because now it's like, oh, it's Bill Murray. But, you know, he's Bill Murray has always been in good movies. I mean, early 90s, it's like, what about Bob? Like, he's always been in stuff, but he was not, dare I say, quote unquote, Bill Murray like he is now. And I think this movie did that. This movie established him as like, yeah, I'll show up in your $10 million movie. I'll give an amazing performance that like, I I still don't know what the hell he's doing in it, but it all works. All of his choices work, but. I think you're right. And I think this is the movie where people recognize that Bill Murray um, reinvents himself. Because he's always carried that reputation since this movie. Because up until before this, of course, you've got Groundhog Day, What About Bob, all of those movies. But there's a period of point where not a lot's going on. He's still kind of coasting off of his past, which is what happens when you are an actor of his caliber that's made such an impact during, a, during an era. But when it's time to change, you have to go somewhere completely different and reinvent yourself. And that's where his respect I think, you know, it it just became 100% ignited. And I think it started with this movie. I think you're right. Yeah. And I mean, just to hammer this home a little bit, he has What About Bob in 91, Groundhog Day in 93. Those are still really big. But then here are this next streak. We have Mad Dog and Glory, Ed Wood, not a big role in Ed Wood, Kingpin, Larger Than Life, Space Jam, okay, The Man Who Knew Too Little. Yeah, wild things and then a movie with friends like these dot 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 i've never heard of that and then rushmore 
So when I say like that, this was a bit of a lull. That's ninety four to ninety eight. When I say there was a lull, and Wes Anderson reinvigorated him, I think that's accurate. And yeah. I honestly think in when I was rewatching this movie, that was my biggest takeaway from the movie that Bill is all in. He's doing great work, and it's making it's just giving him that boost to kind of make him Bill Murray. The cool thing about Wes Anderson's movie Rushmore in particular is that there's someone out there. I mean, I have individuals in my life who every movie Wes Anderson has made, it's their favorite movie. Like, so Rushmore, I have a friend that's his favorite Wes Anderson movie. He's seen them all. I have friends who they have seen every single Wes Anderson movie and like them and their favorite and they can defend it passionately is Isle of Dogs. It's just, it's kind of fascinating. It's yeah. just so cool to bounce around and be like, no, I rep Rushmore really hard. Here's why I rep Life Aquatic really hard. Here's why. With all that noted, when I rewatched it for this, it's a good movie. It's a good movie, but yeah, it's, it, is. It, it, it is. It's, I didn't think it was perfect. I didn't think it was perfect, mm-hmm. you know, and that's okay. It was like f- watching an order. I went, oh, uh, I think I appreciate this more in terms of like its iconic status because it did do a lot for the industry. It did a lot for yeah. independent film. It did a lot for Wes Anderson as a filmmaker, Bill Murray as an actor, Jason Schwartzman as an actor. And those are the things I take away from it most. But I, yeah, I don't think this is his best film. I think there are a lot of people who disagree with me and say it is, but it's interesting now that his career has matured, that this feels like, I do not mean this disparagingly at all, but it feels like a very worthy sophomore effort. I do believe he's matured as a filmmaker. Am I making sense? You know what I mean? A hundred percent. And I agree with you because I I know many people that to exactly your point, like if you like Wes Anderson, everyone has a different favorite, but Rushmore is one that pops up on a lot of people's radar for their favorite Wes Anderson movie. And I completely agree with you. I think this, in this sophomore effort, his style really comes to the forefront Yes. We're like even in the opening title card sequence where we're seeing all of the extracurricular activities that Jason Schwartzman's character does. We're seeing that that's not how Bottle Rocket looked. That's not how Bottle Rocket mm-hmm. presented itself. This is be- now going to become a trademark for how visually Wes Anderson moves through his movies. But I think for me, the reason, because I did like this, especially a lot more coming back around to it, but um, I think the thing that I don't like about this movie so much is not the acting, it's the character of Jason Schwartzman. That little fucking asshole. It wears on you a little bit. Yeah, it does. Like it, because Wes Anderson loves like smarmy, asshole, antagonistic, yeah, yeah. and it's characters. That, that's his, yep. yes, that's his bread and butter, but it's... It, it, it's a little. He just doesn't fucking let up, and you're like, at all. We're not slamming Schwartzman. I don't think it's no, just, it's just no. The characters is I love him. That's all. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Me too. I think this movie has more attitude than any of his other movies. Even in the attitudes of the characters, I think that's even going back to Bill Murray. What reinvented Bill Murray was he's obviously the comedic master that he is, but this is the one where he's a little bit of an asshole here. Or he's a little mm-hmm. bit deadpan in that way. And Schwartzman's character is such a little prick that there's just like there's it's rough around the edges in so many ways that I um I I was just picking up on it. I was I was wrote it. I was like, this movie's got attitude. Like it's got it's got yeah. some bite. It does have bite. That's a good way to put it. And I, I again, yeah, it's like I would give this like a B plus A minus. So we're not we're not sitting here like no, slamming anything. It's just 
I I do think he matured as a filmmaker, yeah, and I think absolutely. a lot of people saw Rushmore and was like, okay, this guy's just we're gonna get movies like this for the rest of his career, and you know he evolves three years later. I I honestly really well, I'm gonna set this up because this is Christmas like 2001, and my whole family's visiting. I'm 16. I did not take them to Ocean's Eleven or The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, or Beautiful Mind. Nope. I took them to the quirky modern masterpiece that is How High, starring Method Man and Red Man. I'm just kidding. I took them to, I dragged everyone to see the Royal Tenenbaums, and they either liked it or they didn't. And I had the complete opposite reaction, as you did. I saw this movie and was still kind of like, I'm on the edge. I'm like, I get Bottle Rock, and now I like that. I need to go revisit Rushmore, I think. Movie number three, let's see what happens. And this completely opened up the Wes Anderson world for me in every regard. Still does. Yeah. It's like it's an A-plus movie, 10 out of 10, whatever you want to say. I think there's so much value to be found in it. And I sat in that theater and saw a wildly eccentric, wholly original work of art. And I loved Wes Anderson. I listened to the commentary for this, and he yeah. described it in, in the beginning so well. One sentence describes the movie perfectly. He says, the first five minutes is about exploring their strengths. The rest of the movie is about exploring their weaknesses. And that's like, oh, okay, great. Like, uh, duh. I never put that together. And it's so, so true. And it's just brilliant. I love this movie. Dude, you, you literally, that was exactly the first thing that I was going to say about this. Are you like, serious? hundred <laughs> percent. Like, I was going to bring up the commentary. Best friend vibes. <laughs> and, and I was going to talk about the, one of the coolest pointing things he said about this and exactly what you said. Boom. <laughs> I love when when directors do title cards of the actor playing the character. So it's like yeah. Gene Hackman as Royal Tenenbaum in the beginning. They're all getting ready. They're all dressing up. It's like the confidence to pull that off. That's a word we use a lot when we're talking about directors here. The confidence to pull that off is tell the studio, hey, I'm going to introduce like all these really, really famous people. We haven't maybe seen them in the movie yet, but I'm just going to give like a title card. They're going to be looking directly into the camera. Uh like, th- this shit is crazy. Yeah. Very European-based. There is French New Wave, Italian neorealism all over this. But, yeah, this is one that connected for me right away. But it was cool to hear how, you know, it didn't really hit for you the first time. First time, it really didn't. And 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 that was my first experience with him. And so I think I just did not – I'd never seen anything like it. And I just didn't really know what to put together. And I was also younger. But I do remember it was years had gone by and I finally revisited it. And I had already enjoyed Life Aquatic since then. I think I'd even seen more movies. I think it really took a while to go back to Royal Tenenbaums. But when I did, I couldn't agree with more with you. A plus, 10 out of 10. I absolutely loved every second of it. I loved all of its style. Because even from going from Rushmore to this, you know, we talk about Rushmore that's where you really start to see the Wes Anderson style come out. This one blows it right out the freaking door. It's it's really quite astounding. J- just yep. the, just the confidence itself yep. and like setting up your scenes this way, cutting this quickly. What's really Great. refreshing, one thing that I don't know if you picked up on this about listening to the commentary is that Wes would periodically go throughout the whole entire movie and then talk about things that happened or way things went and have no real idea behind why he did it. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. he would like Ben Stiller would be like, why am I wearing, you know, track jogging suits. suit? Yeah, track suit. And Wes Anderson's like, I don't know. 
<laughs> does it make sense i don't know does it make sense that there's like mice running around in every scene i don't know but it's hilarious it's yes. so funny it, it's just very very refreshing to hear a director talk about how much they don't know about their own movie and but that gives you a lot of permission to just lean into what you like because that's one thing he always talks about almost like scene after scene after scene he brings up an inspiration for exactly a french new wave um, any type of European movie that really influenced him for this. Um, so you see like how directors kind of take what they want or what has been inspiring to them and find a way to do it their way. It, it's it's really, really beautiful to actually see that unfold when you're wa- listening to the director speak it out loud. If you are a fan of Wes Anderson and his movies, I highly recommend the commentaries. They are, thank you very much for mentioning uh, that he is all about talking about influences in his commentaries. I yep. find, man, it is it does not sit well with me when directors and commentaries like like you're watching a movie and you and I know like oh they got that from blank movie yeah. and they talk about it like it was their idea. You see that shit all you rather you hear that shit all the time. Oh yeah, all the time. And he's like, oh Luke Wilson says I'm going to kill myself tomorrow because that's from a Louis Malle film, The Fire Within, and it's like oh. Uh, Thank you, sir. And I remember in like 2002, hearing that commentary right away, went to Fire Within. Great film, by the way. Intense, but great film. Kind of like a 60s leaving Las Vegas, honestly. European, but French. And you know, French, they do things different over there. (laughs) That's another thing that makes Wes Anderson uh, better as time goes on and why the craft speaks to me more. Because as I get older, I see more movies that i haven't seen before movies that maybe i didn't appreciate as much now like fellini godard Truffaut, and that is this man's bread and butter yeah it just goes to say like royal tenenbaums a story construction which is anchored by like a really really truly flawless narration from alec baldwin who's not in the movie but what's cool about this is you can really make a strong case that everyone in this is as good if not better than they've ever been and i mean Gwyneth Paltrow, Angelica yep. Houston, Luke Wilson, Danny Glover. They all give really such like measured performances. But then, of course, you have Gene Hackman, who uh, by all accounts was a terror while working on this movie. But we are given certainly the last great Gene Hackman performance. But one that I would say is like, this is like a top three or Gene Hackman performance ever, if not the best. And that's yeah. It wasn't really public at the time how much of a um I mean I'm not talking about her. He was an asshole on this movie. Mm-hmm. Like he was a complete and utter asshole. And that didn't and that got brought out later and kind of like Bill Murray was the one who saved it and sh- and kind of like calmed Gene down and Gene just basically picked on Wes all the time, but we've talked about this a little before. It's like I guess what's just on the movie, what's on screen is what matters and that performance is great. I don't, you know, I'm not into like bullying any shit like that, but it's a truly amazing performance and i think some of the bullying probably led into the character you know because he's an antagonistic lying asshole and he plays it to perfection one of the great performances of this century so far certainly it's incredible because wes anderson has such a stylistic approach to his characters a certain cadence a delivery you know every actor he works with it speaks to the talent that Wes Anderson must have is working with actors because they all hit it. Like there's never in a Wes Anderson movie, a a flat performance or one that doesn't like understand the assignment in that way that 
Wes Anderson is very, very specific. And I love that we're talking about this because um, he had the, he has a quote in um, in the commentary where he talks about the difference between great actors and actors who are just trying to, you know, get it right. Mm-hmm. And and he's like, the difference is, is that good actors, they want to be great. They do what they have to to be great. And that and being great does not mean I hope I did what the director wanted. I hope I did it right. I hope I did it. They're willing to go out and dare to fail. They know that that's what needs to be done in order to be great. They're not afraid to be great. And I think that's very empowering. I think that's a very, very cool way of differentiating and hoping that, like, let's get the best that we can get out of all of this. It's a great performance. And just we'll do some very quick Oscar talk with Tenenbaums because it's the first time Wes Anderson's nominated for an Oscar. I mean, original screenplay, we have Gosford Park wins, Amelie, Memento, Monsters Ball, Royal Tenenbaums. I'm actually giving that to Memento, but I would give it to Royal Tenenbaums over Gosford Park. I think I'd actually give it to Tenenbaums overall. Nice, nice. It's incredibly well written. From the the, the narration to the, the individual dialogue with everyone. And I think that's the coolest thing is like, I think this was the movie for me. The reason why we liked it so much and we're giving it like this A plus and out of 10 is because this is the one where I feel like his writing and his style finally really merged. Mm-hmm. Like this was the culmination. But interesting enough, he's always until recently always had writing partners yeah and i find that to be very fascinating because he worked he wrote this rushmore and bottle rocket all with owen wilson owen wilson is an oscar nominee for best original screenplay folks (laughs) yeah it's fucking wild i love it so now we venture to the part that i was most nervous about for this podcast and here here's why it was really cool uh listening to you tee up this movie but I saw The Life Aquatic in 2004, opening weekend in theaters. I'm a big Wes Anderson fan. Hated it. I hated every single second of it. I could not. I almost left. I almost walked out when the pirates stormed the ship. I had no idea what was going on and didn't like it and have maintained that attitude ever since. For example, when we started this, I'm looking at it right now. When we got the idea to do Wes Anderson for podcast, I made my... He's made nine movies, so I did a top nine list, and I did them in order. Life Aquatic was very low ranked, and I gave it a D plus. That's how little I like this movie. I have seen it twice. I saw it in the theater, and I saw it. Um, I did a Wes Anderson post for my blog, a director's post. Rewatched it for that, I don't know, like 2012, 13. Nope, didn't like it. It's not that I wasn't looking forward to it, but I'm like, man, I'm going to have to think of a way to talk about this movie because we try to keep things light and positive on this podcast. Watch it for this. Loved it. Yes, I got up my phone like four times to text you. Yes, nope, save it for the pod. Oh, I'm so glad. I don't know where I was in 2004 or 2012. I I actually I'm watching. I'm a half hour in, and I'm like, everything is going so well that I don't like. When did this fall out for me originally? I remembered. Oh, it's when those pirates come. That's when. That's like halfway through. I'm not gonna like it. Just I'm in stitches the whole time, laughing. And I'm waiting. I'm like, yeah. what? When is this going to drop out? And it doesn't. And here's why. This is why. Because the movie didn't change. Obviously, I did. What I've done since 2004 is gotten way more knowledge on European cinema. And the Fellini, the eight and a half in this, that helicopter crash, 
is all over it. I have become a filmmaker since 2004. So I now understand all the technical shit there when he's calling out to Vikram, like the F stop, you know, five, five and a half, five, three and a half. It's just, I get all that, the recording stuff. This is Wes Anderson's stoner movie. It's, you know, it's Jackie <laughs> Brown. It's inherent vice. Bill Murray is always kind of managing a steady high. His cadence is very specific here. You know, be cool on this shit, Cubby, <laughs> as they're getting robbed by pirates. And I totally get what this is doing now. Way all over my head. I Because I get all of this stuff now. I mean, I never realized that was fucking Bud Court as the Banks dude from Harold yeah, and Maude. Yeah. I never realized that until this viewing session. So... I, I loved it. It's one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies now. That is the power of a craftsperson, someone who knows yep. what they're doing. One of the biggest about faces of my entire life. I'm not even kidding. Not kidding. And like, I even think that's even cooler because what I'm about to say. So like, so in the beginning, I said this was my intro to liking Wes because mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. saw it in 2004 in theaters and it all clicked. I loved every second of it. Then I, I saw one other time in between then and now, because I did rewatch it for this, but somewhere in between there, I watched it again, and I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. I, had a, I had the thought that I was like, man, I thought I really liked this movie, but I'm watching it now, and I'm like, I am not feeling it. I put it on for this, I really went right back to falling in love with it from the second, but I think I had... As a filmmaker and seeing everything I've seen and seeing all these influences and all of that, that helped. But a hundred percent, this movie is anchored by Bill Murray's performance. Mm-hmm. It, it his emotional life is what drives everything. It's what drives the crew. It's what drives everyone around him. He's such an asshole, <laughs> and he's so bitter. It's actually really sad. I think that's why I didn't like it the second time because mm-hmm. I was like, this is just a sad fucking guy. Yeah. But this time, I don't know why, but I just connected with his melancholy. So he's in the gala and he's like, how are you? He goes, I'm right at the edge. I'm teetering. I'm right there. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, okay, dude. <laughs> I love Angelica Husey. You know, Zizo shoots blanks. I, I'm <laughs> And it'll be very, very interesting for all you mad movie buffs that are listening to tell us what you actually think of this one, because I think this is the one where it does seem to have a love or hate Mm -hmm. status to it in terms of how people view it. Because even when you and I are talking about this, like whatever I connected with in 2004 when I saw it that I loved, I reconnected with and whatever in between there I didn't, I did not feel strongly about it all. But again, that is true to the craftsmanship because mm-hmm. that just means that you connect so well to it that something's right or you have, you're have you so off the mark with what's going on that the movie's just not for you. Yeah. Maybe at that time. I could not believe it watching it. I felt like I was watching a new movie. I'm like, I remember these scenes. I've seen this. Why? This is, it's just, it hit for me in every way. It's really going back and revisiting like if you love a Wes Anderson movie but don't like one of his go back and watch that one you don't like because yeah you don't like because there's something there's probably something there that that you didn't realize before um you mentioned co-writers that one was written by co-written by Noah Baumbach I think that's important to remember yep. who's obviously gone on to have a great career 
Next up, next up is one that I have never had any issue with from the first time I saw it opening weekend in 2007 to when I rewatched it two days ago. The Darjeeling Limited, which was written by Wes, Roman Coppola, and Jason Schwartzman. This has always been one of my favorites. Um, I really appreciated him going back to a tighter, smaller story like Bottle Rocket and Rushmore. Um, I, I mean, in fact, he this is the last kind of movie of its kind that he's made because every other live action movie he's made since are these huge, big casts that, you know, focus on a lot of different stories, which is great. This one's just about three brothers, Owen Wilson, Jason Schwartzman, and Adrian Brody. They travel as they travel through India by train, trying to reconnect after the sudden death of their father about a year ago. I mean, where I begin here is that these three, while they don't necessarily look like brothers, their chemistry is outrageous and they are so good in such a actual literal confined space. I mean, they didn't, these weren't sets, they filmed on a train, so they are cramped in there and they're just, they're so in sync. And in terms of like film chemistry, this is probably my favorite Wes. I think these three vibe on such a way that is so believable that I I get it. And I've, I've always loved Darjeeling Limited. I know you like this one a lot too. Everything, this is my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Oh, well, nice. I didn't know that. That's great. I, oh. And I have seen this movie many times and I have not had uh, like the experience we've been talking about earlier with Life Aquatic or maybe some experiences that I've had later with some of his movies. Mm-hmm. But Darjeeling, I have seen at least eight times and I fall in love with it every single time. But I have something that I think is very crucial, in my opinion, vital to this movie. And I know we are going to talk about it, but I want to, if it's all right, if I may, have the floor with Hotel Chevalier. Yeah, this was a part, this was a, a prompt, a discussion point. So get, get into it. So in 2007, when this movie was released in theaters, Wes included it. As part of the whole entire thing, but separately as a short. So mm-hmm. you're going to watch a short film followed by the feature film. And the short film is all about the character in Darjeeling, Jason Schwartzman's character, Jack, held up in a hotel room. He's brokenhearted because he's got a, a very complicated relationship with this woman, played by Natalie Portman. And the short is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then I watched the movie. And I loved it, loved everything about it. Fast forward like a year later, I'm on a plane and I'm looking at my movie choices and Darjeeling's on. I'm like, oh, I'll watch Darjeeling. They did not include the Hotel Chevalier short. And I'm watching the movie and all I can think of, I go, something's missing here. This movie feels a little without. And I realize it's because you're so, the characterizations of Owen Wilson, Jason Schwartzman and Adrian Brody are so well done. By having one story that you get to know from one of these brothers coming into the train where we'll meet all three of them, by just knowing where one of them is coming from, it allows your imagination as an audience to put together an idea of what what Owen Wilson just came from, Mm -hmm. what Adrian Brody just came from. There's a depth now that all of a sudden is there because we got to see where one of these brothers was like before we get onto this train. And by having that, I think it just opens up so much more to what you can do with that movie as an audience and what your interpretation of these characters are 
just because of that short film. That's my hot take. I stand by it. Yes, certainly. And I want to piggyback off that and just toss you a question that you aren't going to have the answer to because who does? Why not make this the first scene of Darjeeling Limited? Why have this as a short and not the first scene so that we never have that issue? We never have a problem with someone missing because yep. they're watching it on a plane or, you know, I have the DVD here and it asks you, do you want to watch the film with the short first or not? And I've, yep. I've, I've talked to just as many people who have seen and loved Darjeeling Limited who haven't seen the short as have. But yeah, in the theater, they played it first. So, you, you know, you didn't have a choice. It's like, it was a natural progression. I'm not dinging Wes Anderson for this because they set out to make this short first as its own independent mm-hmm. thing. And then he realized in making the short, hmm. I wonder if that character is one of the brothers for the thing I'm working on. Huh. So as people who have made short films, I very much respect that having your short breathe into a feature, but for distribution purposes, it's very, it's very interesting to me that they didn't, you know, package it together or that's not the first scene of the movie. And I guess, I mean, I love Dark Gillian Lemon. I love how it begins with the, the crazy excitement of Bill Murray where he's going, (laughs) Yeah. Is he going to make it? Then Brody just runs up right next to him. That double take he gives Murray like, what? all right, dude. And then just keeps running. But I have no issue with how the short and the feature are laid out right now as is. No problem. But yeah. I'm also a maniac who's going to watch the short no matter what. There are a lot of people who still have not seen the short. And I wonder, yeah. I wonder if that does a slight disservice to the film as a whole. That's all. It's just my opinion that it does. So I guess the big takeaway from this whole entire conversation is, is if you have not seen Hotel Chevalier and you like the Darjeeling Limited, see Hotel Chevalier. It's a great little, little piece of work. If, have you ever talked to anyone who's seen Darjeeling Limited who hasn't seen the short? I'm sure I have. Well, next time you do. Yeah. What do you why, ask? Whenever I do, people are like, why the fuck was Natalie Portman? in the end for like 10 seconds oh yeah yeah like what like what's going on and i and i go oh because you okay okay you gotta go back yep. you gotta go back but um I, I mean god we're just talking about the short we haven't even gotten like schwartzman's maturity from rushmore to this is in cr- nine years it's that's insane like he's such a much more mature actor really pulling off that look by the way like the long hair the mustache i love the way yeah you're this. um love it. this is my favorite wes anderson soundtrack no question. I listen to this thing still all the time. Um, I brush my teeth to it. Okay. Well, that's a little personal. <laughs> Owen Wilson has always felt like an extension of Dignan from Bottle Rocket to me in this. He's, you know, the type A, the planning, the itineraries, super sensitive, controlling. One thing that's hard to pull off in movies, you know, a lot of like New York intellectual movies get this criticism a lot. Limitless wealth, characters who where money is not an issue where they can literally just like tear up plane tickets on a runway or literally toss out like Louis Vuitton luggage. That's a hard thing to pull off because very few of us have limitless wealth, but it's just so enjoyable to watch them. Like it's, it's just not a factor. Like all the stuff they're passing around is so expensive, but I, I just love watching these rich idiots do dumb stuff. And my, my final thing is, you know, if we're going to get into Wes Anderson, like set pieces, I mentioned the opening of Royal Tenenbaums, which I think is great. All that introduction. The New York flashback in this movie is just that jump mm. cut to them all in black. If you would have said, I'll give you a hundred bucks. Tell me the total running time of that flashback would have told you 20 minutes. It's six. 
It's six minutes. Yeah. It is incredible. Just like the the futility of getting the car when you know it's not going to work and doing it. That's like a it's like a grief stricken masculine thing. Like I'm no, I have a task. I'm going to do it. The task is illogical. Don't care. The task won't work. Don't care. I'm doing it. And I, there's something about that scene. That, that's my favorite scene in the movie. I love that so much. Yeah. And it's such like a bold choice. Like, boom, we're going to jump back. And then, boom, we're right back in India. Um, I, I don't know if Adrian Brody will ever give a better performance than he did in The Pianist. That's fair. That's like a Oscar-winning uh, career-defining work. Wes Anderson knows how to use him better than any other director right now. That I He agree. really knows what to do. He captures his energy so well. Brody, to me in this movie, is hilarious, kind of steals the show, but I can't help. I get like a a shiver or a shake of complete and utter horror when that camera, boom, punches in on him and he just goes, he's dead. He's dead. You know, with that kid. It's like yeah, just the, the stoicism. Of, I, I couldn't do it. I didn't say mine. He's dead. Oh, they, oh, this is the movie now. It's like about this kid that died, or at least it's going to be like a 25 minute, you know deviation it's a great movie because (laughs) of wes anderson's so stylistic in every capacity of his movies do you think that this is his most human like his most kind of grounded in the in in, like the characters are stylized in their way but they're also very they get very personal with each other in ways that i feel like some wes anderson movies don't necessarily get to there's a certain depth I think this movie gets to that human factor more than any other one. It's a way more mature film that people may give it credit for. It, it is. It's his most human. I've never thought about that yeah. with him. Um, but yeah, now that you're asking and I'm thinking about it, it's like, yeah, sure. Two years later, we're going to completely switch gears. He's jumping studios. He's moving to 20th Century Fox for the first time. And West delivers a stop-motion, animated, family-friendly movie, Fantastic Mr. Fox, based on the book by Ronald Dahl. West co-wrote it again with Noah Baumbach. And this is, it's a perfectly enjoyable animated film. The European-inspired camera movements are something I really picked up on this time and, and was very amused by, just all those jump quick pans. The voices are all wonderfully cast. There isn't a bad one in the lot. And, you know, I at 87 minutes, this thing is a breeze. I And it moves really well. Like, it's a good movie. But I wonder, uh, we've never talked about this. No. What do you think of it? Um, so this is my second time seeing it. Same. First time I saw it, I, um, similarly to a bit of other conversations, I did not like it. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it much more the second time around. However... I love the characters. I love the story. I love the writing. In some ways, I was like, this is the most enjoyable writing I've heard from Wes Anderson. I don't like the animation. Yeah, I mean, that's... It gets to me. The stop motion stuff, yeah. That's another reason why I mentioned the 87 minutes is because I think that's just enough time for my patience to start kind of wearing thin with the animation, with the story. And and this is not a fault of the film so much as a a critique on my tastes because yeah. a- animated films are definitely what I have the hardest time connecting to of any genre. I was probably lukewarm on fantastic Mr. Fox when I saw it in the theater in 2009. I did like it more this time. Not my favorite West movie. I know a lot of people. We have a mutual friend. This is his favorite Wes Anderson movie. So it, that's the cool thing about Wes is that he, he does have a very distinct style, but he makes films in different themes that you can latch onto one and be like, nah, Fantastic Mr. Fox, that is my jam. 
You know, and we're similar in this way. I'm not the biggest animation fan uh, as well, but I do enjoy it and I do respect it. And I and um, but I do find this movie is very fascinating in the sense that people who don't like Wes Anderson for his style. So th- so they're not going to vibe with Tannenbaum's Grand Budapest, Darjeeling. They don't like any of that, but they do like Fantastic Mr. Fox. That's very true. I found that often as well but this movie does do one thing that i started to notice and it's only really only in two other movies but i find it interesting is that uh the the character that jason schwartzman plays Mm -hmm. um who i think is actually my favorite character in the movie he does this thing when someone says something that he doesn't like he just spits (laughs) he doesn't he doesn't spit at him but there's like a delayed reaction and then he in his response to what was just said was spitting yeah i think my favorite ongoing bit in the movie is that the guy whose eyes go all blank and he's like, you got to give me a signal and he yeah. puts his hand up and then Clooney <laughs> yeah. does it later. He just does that little thing and he's like, all right, cool. I, yeah, I love that. The way they eat is really funny. It's hilarious. So next up, we're in 2012. I'm not going to lie. I was given a little curveball because I thought Moonrise Kingdom was your favorite Wes Anderson movie. And this is your show in our second episode ever of the podcast. You said this is one of your top 10 films of the decade. Mm-hmm. It is co-written by Roman Coppola. Released in 2012, tell me about Moonrise Kingdom. There's just some magic to it. There's something like going on in this movie that as his career has progressed, the craftsmanship has has gotten more mature and more deep. But there's just something that's a little bit more magical in this one. That casting of those two kids is just phenomenal. They're great. And um, shout out to Bruce Willis. I think that might be my favorite Bruce Willis performance. Well, yeah. When was the last time he was this good? I, I had a note and I looked it up and it was Ocean's 12 when he plays himself for like four minutes. Yeah. That was the last time he was this good. <laughs> he brings a sensitivity to this performance that he very rarely allows himself to go. Yeah. And I like him in The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. I always thought Shyamalan knew how to use him very well in that. But we're not talking about like a very vulnerable guy. And I think he's really just magnetic in this yeah I, I have to imagine that he just had a ball making this if he didn't then that then he deserves an oscar nomination for this because he seems like yeah he's my favorite part of the movie uh, unquestionably and i kind of hijacked what you were saying so keep keep going it, <laughs> there's just a sadness to him yeah. that that is talked about by other characters which is always like a clue in like when you're reading a script as an actor like pay attention to what other characters say about you mm-hmm. And, you know, it is expressed by a few people that he's kind of a sad guy. But the way that he embodies that is just something that you don't usually see him do. But this movie clued me into a writing. So his writing is so stylized, right? Like mm-hmm. his characters all talk a very specific way. You, your ears fall in line with it. You love it or you don't. But that is Wes. But the humor comes when that style drops and a certain reality to the situation uh, is is said by a character. And including Edward Norton in this movie has a bit where, because he's always talking in a stylized manner. He's like the, tr- the scout leader, mm-hmm. very like Jiminy Crickets, you know, very, very specific. But in a moment where he's very concerned about what's happened to one of his missing scouts, he's talking in that, in that way. And he goes, I just hope he isn't like, fall off a cliff or drown some goddamn fucking lake or something. <laughs> and it completely breaks yeah. the style and goes to just the reality of the situation. 
And I started to notice that Wes does this all the fucking time with almost every character. And I'm like, that's a little writing trick of his is like, I know all my characters talk like this, but when the time is right, Bill Murray is probably the master at it for doing that. Because then he just goes into his Bill Murray cadence with it. Almost in the way where it's sort of like when Quentin Tarantino talks about how Sam Jackson and um, and uh, Christoph Waltz sing their dialogue. They treat it like poetry. Yeah. Like he just like they say it exactly the right way. I feel like Bill Murray is like that for Wes Anderson. Absolutely. Like Bill Murray just knows how Wes Anderson is looking for that delivery and that switch of comedy to drama in that way. But I picked up on that on this one and I thought that was just it's brilliant all around. And then um, you get Tilda Swinton just come in there. Character name, social, social services. services. Perfect. <laughs> she might other than Willis. Like, I, I love her so much in it. But um, Bruce Willis is the highlight of this film to me. Mm-hmm. This was just a great director profile to do for so many reasons. It was a, it was a great one to explore again. And it was it's really fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to gain more appreciation for this. Um, oh, boy. It's March 2014. A weird time to release a major movie. I walk into the Grand Budapest Hotel and I like it. That's about it. Didn't really think much of it. And then whole year goes by and it's the day of the Oscars. They're in 2015, but they are going to award the movies for 2014. And I go, you know, I, I only watched this once. Like it's nominated for a bunch of Oscars. And I put this thing on and I... I at one point remember saying out loud, like, what the fuck is the matter with you? This is a masterpiece. Incredibly enjoyable, immensely rewatchable. I I rewatched this three times just for this episode. Like, I love this movie. I think it moves so well. And very similar to you. First time seeing it, just liked it. Second time seeing it, Feeling just like that, like, holy shit, what was I thinking? This movie is is is, is masterful, exactly what you said. Saw it again for the third time, so I've only seen it three times. Last night. Uh, oh, man, I couldn't disagree more. I had a very weird about face, about face to this. Oh, man, I think this thing is a fucking treasure. The thing that took me out of it, though... Because I agree with you, and so many web. I actually think this is the best written material he's ever done. I think it's also accompanied by one of the best performances that's ever existed in one of his movies by Ray Fiennes. But Matt, he's like playing with form so much, like he's got three or four different aspect ratios. He's like no, the totally. Like the way he passes off narrators is so so ballsy. But no, I I, I want to hear what took you out the digital aspect. Oh, see, yeah, and. That's what took me out the first time. When I first saw it, I was like, oh, okay. Now, when I watch it now, that's, I just look at it as like, it's like a throwback to something deliberate, but also saving money. Not unlike Bruce Willis in the back of the cab in Pulp Fiction, where like Tarantino can yeah. shoot like them in a car. But instead, he has that very, very artificial backdrop back there. And Grand Budapest, I if you're watching the animation and taking it, quote unquote, like seriously, like this is supposed to be real life, that in my opinion is, and I'm not saying you're doing this, I'm saying you as in like everyone, you're you're gonna have trouble with it, I think. 
But and and as as I did the first time I watched it, like that's yep. kind of the way he'll cut to a map or something. Sometimes that's how I looked at it. He's just cutting to no. like a, a rendered animation to move things along. But I get I get what you're saying. And you're right though. And I think I just realized something else too. It might be because I might have had the reaction I had to it because watching all of these movies in his entire filmography for the past week and a half straight, mm-hmm. seeing all of these beautiful set pieces, like in Life Aquatic, he actually built that ship and yeah. they kept swi- like moving the camera. So seeing all of these actual real things being made, coming from all those movies back to back to back to back, going straight into this and now seeing that world that I've been in for this past week and a half, now seeing so much of it not actually being in front of me the way it's been in, in the last movies, I didn't like it. I get it. And I think I might have just taken it a little bit. Now, let's say, for example, a year goes by and I watch Grand Budapest again, and I'm not in Wes's world like I am currently. I may have a very different reaction all of a sudden. I might forgive it and kind of feel the same way. Like, And we are being told a story. We are being kind of given this... like. um fantastical type of you know recounting of of this tale but when i was in the like certain like these kitchens or like the jail cells i'm like man that's not the actual background is it like that's not those things aren't actually there like they usually are in wes's movies it just bothered me the whole entire time yeah i mean that's but it did not take away from everything else that you're talking about because i agree wholeheartedly with those things Steve Zissou is 50 million budget and they have all the stuff, the practical stuff you're talking about. Grand Budapest Hotel is several years later, 10 years later, and it's 25 million. So it's half the cost with a an amazing cast. Steve Life Aquatic has a great cast, but Grand Budapest Hotel, like all those actors measured up are great. Yep. So you can't get all those people in it if you're shooting in practical locations everywhere. So that I'm I'm just you know, I'm just standing on getting to the defense of the movie a little bit. But no, totally. the reason the reason why I have so many like stock arguments for this is because you're saying exactly what I thought about it the first time I saw it. That I'm like, this animation is kinda like choppy and spite and I don't I don't really get it. But I do wonder this about the French dispatch too, if he if he yeah. is going to move away from this kind of like Darjeeling Limited, what one of the things that makes that movie so cool is that they are there. They are on the train. They are yep. in India. There are no special effects. Or if there are, there are very little, very few special effects. Whereas Grand Budapest is building the world in a computer, largely. But yep. I think everything he's been trying to say in his whole career really culminated in this. The the style of it. I mean, you know, this is We've been touching on nominations, but we breezed over Moonrise Kingdom, which was nominated for original screenplay, lost to Django Unchained, but like no Wes Anderson movie had been taken very seriously by the Academy. Yeah. And this thing wins Oscars. It's nominated for him and it takes production design, costume design. It wins four and it's nominated for a bunch of major other ones, which I have a theory that I think Wes Anderson operates best in the R-rated domain. Because when his characters just throw out a random F-bomb that you didn't expect, you know, yeah. and Ray finds it, he's the best to do that. This is, pro- I don't know, this could be my favorite performance in a Wes Anderson movie. The it's fact mine. that he wasn't nominated for best actor is embarrassing, uh-huh. especially when we consider who won that year, which is just like one of the bigger, biggest Oscar travesties ever. That, oh my God. But yep. when I rewatched this movie the second time, the thing that made me, you know, spoiler alert, skip ahead a couple seconds if you haven't seen Grand Budapest. 
it it's this whole fight of like just be polite all you have to ray fine just be polite and people you know don't be rude people speak to you he can talk his way out of any situation and they just fucking kill him off camera he just dies and that is yeah that is such a coldly pessimistic wes anderson thing to do because he does that sometimes it's like Oh, the beloved dog and all of Royal Tenenbaums bump run over last scene. It's like he will do that to you and kind of be like, there's just a coldness to that that is then left on F. Murray Abraham's shoulders. They pass it back to him. And just, you know, when he's talking about Agatha, and, uh, you feel the weight of all that. And I I don't even think I caught that he died the first time I saw it. I, I think I miss it. And the second time I was like, oh, wow, that's it's actually kind of fucking hilarious that like he went all this way and then boop you're just he's gone they killed him i what i found fascinating about what you're talking about was last night watching it the the stakes for everything that goes on in that movie if, if and i might be wrong but to me never felt higher or more dangerous than the first scene where um him and the lobby boy are in the train cab and they get asked for their papers mm-hmm. And they put him up against the wall. The fear that Ray Fiennes has, like, don't touch my lobby boy. Yeah. Like, they are having, like, that great back-to-back shot where they're looking at each other, bloody noses, but fear in their eyes until Edward Norton comes in and calms the situation. For the rest of that movie, the stakes never, ever get that high, stylistically or emotionally. And, uh, well, no, maybe stylistically they get higher, but emotionally they don't. So then to come back that that's actually how... His character dies. Yeah. Is same thing. Exactly. They're in the cab. And he's rich now. He's like a rich, notable guy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was like, that's a really cool way to bring that all back. Yep. But you also said something that uh, clued me in. And I'm not, I can't be sure because I wasn't keeping count in the first two. But Wes Anderson kills an animal in every single movie. <laughs> um, Does he? Oh man, it's tough. Yeah, yeah. Or or you may not kill them. Something bad happens to an animal. Like Life Aquatic, they don't kill the dog, but they leave him on the island. Like, wait, we got to go back for Cody, and then they show the three legged dog running. Cat in Grand Budapest. Yeah. What about Moonrise? Yeah. Wait, there's something in Moonrise. Moonrise, the the Snoopy. The Snoopy, yes. That during the fight they kill Snoopy. Darjeeling the snake. Well, the snake um, lives, but you th- think the it's snake? in trouble. Okay, let's see. Rushmore. Yeah, exactly. Rushmore, I can't Rocket. remember something in Rushmore or Battle Rocket. Those are the two well, I you can't know, what? know for you sure. You know what? Wes Anderson to me is canceled because I don't like <laughs> the animals, so I quit. Podcast done. <laughs> I don't like the cat. I didn't like the cat thing. This is a boom. When they show the cat splattered down, I'm like, oh, man. Yeah. And I was just sort of like, huh, something bad happens to an animal in every single Wes movie. <laughs> We have one left. <laughs> That's hilarious. Four years later, which is oddly the biggest gap in Wes Anderson's career since he started making movies. But four years later, we get another stop motion animated film, Isle of Dogs. Um, wow. I had seen this once in the theater and it it just didn't do it for me. I, I, I was like, wow, okay, that was that was good. There's I will always appreciate like the sushi prep scene is very fun. All the angles are really cool. Some of the voices are cool. And then I put it on last night for this podcast and this was the only time i've texted you in all of the wes anderson research research and i said yeah yeah this movie is so fucking dense like for an animated movie like there's so much going on and there's so much to follow and there you know those title cards are like 
on screen for a millisecond. What? What? And they're so small. And yeah, th- these stop motion animated movies must be incredibly difficult and time consuming to make. Just the very nature of how you do them. And when I when I put it together that this was a four year gap, and then I was like, okay, we have French Dispatch coming out in a week, and then he he has another movie that he's filming right now. Tom Hanks, Margot Robbie. I don't I I don't believe that's going to be animation, but I wonder. If this will be his career, you know, every three or four movies will get another stop motion animation. And if that's the case, then, you know, do your thing, Wes Anderson, all good. But I, I, they're the ones I latch on to. They're the ones I have the hardest time latching on to. And this is, you, you know, it's kind of a shame because we're getting near the end of the podcast and we're at the top of the current filmography. But this is my least favorite Wes. I mean, you know, it's, it's okay. It's okay to say, but it doesn't do much for me if I'm being honest. You you have literally summed up my exact feelings. Well, yeah, right. well, that's what I'm here for. Yeah, you you I I could not have said anything better. Um, I like even down to the sushi bit. Like I think that was like my favorite little right. piece of the really movie. Really cool. Yeah. Yep. I did like the scene a lot with um Scarlett's character when we first meet her, Nutmeg, mm-hmm. and um and Brian mm-hmm. Cranston's like they're looking up at each other. Like I just love the darkness and the way that like her lighting was framed um, and just the way that they were having a conversation, just writing wise. Like I heard basically like you're basically like a floozy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then he like backtracks. Forget what I said. Forget what I said. Um, I liked that scene a lot. Um, but other than that, I completely agree with your, with with your words. You know, it seems like these things are, they're big deals to him. These are expensive movies. Fantastic Mr. Fox is 40 million. Isle of Dogs is 35 million. These are expensive. I mean, Grand Budapest and French Dispatch are both, both 25 million. So he clearly puts a lot of time and effort and planning into them. And if it's the way he wants to express himself every few years, that's, that's great. But, you know, Wes Anderson is only 52 years old. That is, that's, not that old for a filmmaker. He has no. a lot of years left in him making films and it, you know, I'm all for it. I can't wait to see how the style progresses. Oh, I, when I ask you to describe Wes Anderson, how do you feel when you see, you know, a Wes Anderson film? The first word you said was style. And that yeah. is often the biggest criticism lobbied against him that he is style over substance. I can't necessarily disagree with people who say that. People say that about, I don't know, Gaspar Noé and Refn and Soderbergh. Yeah. Even sometimes that's okay. If the style is done well and the form is done well, I don't really need a terribly substantive story. Not not every time. So that criticism has never been an issue for me. But I think his style is at the forefront of Everything he does, you can't ignore it. You can't pretend like it's not there. It's in your face the whole time. But I also think that there is substance there. Mm -hmm, There is. It's underneath all of it, though. And so you have to enjoy the style. But if you enjoy it and you go through one of his whole entire movies, you're going to get to substance. Mm -hmm. You do it in all of them. Even it, it comes down to it, like even down to like Rushmore when she finally combat confronts him about like what do you think is actually going to happen we're going to have sex yeah that right there we're breaking all the things that we've been set up and we're getting down to it oh what is really happening here and it happens in every one of his movies like royal tenenbaums with the suicide darjeeling with these very very human moments 
Moonrise Kingdom. Like we were just talking about with that little scene between the two kids mm-hmm. exploring that romance. That substance yeah. right there. But it also is style. But the substance is there. Uh, otherwise, if there was no substance to his movies, I wouldn't care for it, I don't think. Exactly. Because people like yeah. you and I, we're going to latch on to substance first and then... The craft yeah. that we're talking about, the style, that's what reveals itself later that makes you kind of keep coming back and stuff. But, um, you know, as we're wrapping up here, we Wes Anderson, you know, you got Tarantino is huge on music. Wes Anderson and music is very big to him in his film. So huge. there are so many moments. I don't even know where to begin. I mean, there's obviously Gwyneth Paltrow stepping off the bus and Royal Tenenbaums. That's mentioned yep. a lot. There are so many um, I love his like Rolling Stones B-sides and Darjeeling Limited, you know, play with fire. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. my God. But give me some of you, I'm just, you know, real quick, toss out some of your favorite musical moments in his movies. Uh, I think I'll, I'll give out three. Three, uh, I, the scene when Bill Murray launches into a gunfight on his boat in Life Aquatic <laughs> to the background of Iggy Pop <laughs> in the so Stooges good. Search and Destroy. It's it, it comes out of nowhere. And the buildup to that is so, so well done. And that finally, when he says, fuck it, not on my boat, and then launches into it, and you're you're ready. Like, when that moment happens, like, you're actually charged up and you feel, like, that bravery. And you're like, fuck yeah. But then it immediately turns comedic. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> he's in a Speedo with his, like, and he's just shooting a gun. Explosions. It's so over the top, and you've got like this punk rock song in the background that just fits it all perfectly. So I love that one, uh, Kalija, uh, which is uh, it's used throughout a lot by Hank Williams. It's used a lot in Moonrise Kingdom, but the biggest one is it's our introduction to the um, little boy's character as he's run away, oh, yeah, and yeah, you yeah. see him going through the woods. It's like I, I love that song because I love Hank Williams, and then my favorite goes to. Where do you go to uh, my lovely yeah. by Peter Starsed and Hotel Chevalier? That's my favorite. Just the reoccurring bit of him like when they yep. when uh Sweet Lime comes back into pardon me for not remembering her character name, when she comes into the the room and it just pans over and he hits play on the iPad <laughs> to say yep. that's why you have to watch the short, because that has to play out. For that's you. why you have to that, watch it. That's what makes it deliver right there. <laughs> yep. As we've gone on, I've mentioned some of my favorite characters. I mean, Ray Fiennes at Grand Budapest is just incredible. Owen Wilson is Dignan. My favorite Luke Wilson is in Royal Tenenbaums. I love Richie. There's so many rich characters to choose from. Do you have like a top, I mean, Royal Tenenbaum, of course, duh. Do you have like a top three or, or anything? I'll go with my favorite. I think my favorite performance in a Wes Anderson movie goes to Ray Fiennes for yeah, Grand Budapest. Same. And the fact that he wasn't nominated... That's that's John Cazale level. Eddie Redmayne won. Oh, no. Yay. When was the last time you watched it? I watched The Theory of Everything yesterday. I watch it uh, at least once a month. It's a great movie. I brushed my teeth to it. Saw it once, never again. <laughs> Moving on. Number two, Gene Hackman in oh, Royal Tenenbaums. Another one that should have been nominated. Yep. And then if I'm going with the third one, because I do have a top five, but I'll just round it down to three. Um, Bill Murray, Bill Murray, Life Aquatic. Oh, Life Aquatic, Bill. Okay, give me, give me the, give me the last two. It's fine. Okay, I'll give you, I'll give you more. But I'll say why Bill though is because I think more than any other, I think he was phenomenal in every single one of Wes's movies. But that one right there, because of what we were talking about, that 
emotional place where he's at that drives the movie. If that doesn't work, that movie doesn't work. And so I just thought that was his opus. Four, um, Bruce Willis, Moonrise. Yeah, very fair. And then five, I give to the little kid, Jared Gilman. Oh, nice. Moonrise Kingdom. Nice. I like that. He's perfect. It's a very mature thing for you to do, <laughs> acknowledging a child. Um, those are great. Yeah. I mean, he, the cla- the characters, if you latch onto one, like you can just latch onto Ben Stiller and Tenenbaums and have a great time watching that guy because he's a total uh-huh. nut. And um, okay, top three Wes Anderson films. I've been keeping track of yours. So I'm going to I'm going to call yours out. Number one, Darjeeling Limited. Number two, Moonrise Kingdom. I don't have number three. What rounds out your three? <sighs> Royal Tenenbaums. Nice. If it's either that or Bottle Rocket. Bottle Rocket's so good. Um, and then mine, one, Royal Tenenbaums. Two, Grand Budapest Hotel. Three, Darjeeling Limited. Nice. I think the one I've seen the most is um, Darjeeling Limited, actually. I don't know. There's something easy about yep. it. You can just kind of put it on. It's just... Something it's about nice to have it, like in the yeah. background, like it's a good, yeah, it's it's a fun one. Wes Anderson, this went longer than I thought, and I'm very very pleased by that because we, you know, we dude, were, I loved it it's so much. We fun. talked about how like you know this isn't necessarily going to be a love fest, but that's okay. We don't have to love every single mm-hmm. movie we talk about, and we the bottom line is that we really respect Wes Anderson. We're very excited for the French Dispatch next week. Again, he has another movie that he's filming with Tom Hanks. I think Hanks could fit really, really well into the Wes Anderson world. I, I think, think so too. Especially if it's R and they get, because Hanks doesn't curse a lot. You give Hanks a few like curse words scattered here and there. I don't know. It could play really, really well. And Hanks can be goofy. He can do anything. I think so too. It's very, very exciting to see what he does with this. Uh, absolutely. All right. So we'll move on to what are you watching as we round up here. I went first last time. Why don't you kick it? I wanted to think about a movie because you know you're talking about how um, there's so many movies that he references to his inspirations. Yeah, but you know, in every one of his movies, there's always one movie that I come back to that I just cannot help but feel that this must be one of his all-time favorites. I have no, tr- I have no clue. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I get very, very strong Harold and Maud vibes from Wes Anderson. Oh. So nice. I am going to recommend Harold and Maud for my what are you watching recommendation. Uh, it's also it's a perfect movie. It's so good. It's it's something that uh talk about magic. Oh. Is there's something unbelievably special about this movie. I don't want to say anything about it, but I mean including from down to the music, the soundtrack Sounds like a songs that Wes Anderson would put in his movies. That certain type of taboo, but also style. Like it's, it, 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 there's something that I think just rounds out Wes in that movie. It has to be. Well, I know that he is a huge fan of Hal Ashby. I don't know if I've ever heard him reference Harold and Maude specifically, but if you cast Bud Court in your movie, you have to be a fan of yeah, Harold and Maude. Yeah, like you, yeah, yeah you exactly. So that's, yeah. that's a great pick and one that he has to love. And you've mentioned that one. I remember that's your mom's favorite movie, right? It is. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's, that's her favorite like movie. Best thing. And um, so you mentioned that one on the pod before, and I'm going to talk about one that I've mentioned too, kind of in passing. Also went with a movie that inspires Wes Anderson. This was actually featured in his top 10 criterion films of all time and i'm going with the exterminating angel by louis bunuel 1962 and you know this movie and here's why in midnight in paris owen wilson approaches louis bunuel and he says 
you should make a movie where everyone is trapped in a room and they can't leave. <laughs> Louis Benoit's like, well, why? Like, huh? Why? That's this movie. Oh my God. That is awesome. the movie. There's a bunch of like hoity-toity people who come over for a dinner party in a really nice place and the dinner party's done and they can't leave the room. What do you mean, Alex? I mean, they walk up to the door, the threshold to leave, and there's just something. It's not like they're fighting to get through it. Like, they're not trying to rip it down. They yeah. just can't. It's this French new wave stuff. It's very, very odd, peculiar. Louis Bunuel is one of the great absurdists. Belle du jour, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, the obscure object of desire. I, I love him so much. And yeah, if you watch a few Louis Bunuel movies, you're going to definitely see the Wes Anderson influence. But you would love this movie. I don't know if it's available on Criterion right now, the app. It is. It always is, actually. But you would... Yeah, it has to be if it's criterion, yeah. Very absurdist and just a lot of fun. That was just a lot of fun to go into his work. That was so much fun. Especially not necessarily, like, I love all of Kubrick's movies. I love all of Cassavetti's mm-hmm. independent movies, not necessarily his studio movies. But, you know, some of Wes's don't necessarily hit, like, whoa, whoa, so hard for me. But in, what, six days, we get to see a new Wes Anderson movie and I'll be first in line. And I that will, will probably be the case for the rest of his career. And that I, I just I, I guess basically I just can't wait to see what he continues to do. Um, again, if you explore, we talked about a lot of about face situations for both of us. And if anyone else listening to this, hit us at W.A.Y.W. underscore podcast on Twitter, because if you've had an about face at any point with a Wes Anderson movie, we want to hear about it. And I want to hear you defend the Grand Budapest Hotel to your dying day. To shame Nick. I liked but, it. As always, <laughs> thanks everyone for listening and happy watching. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> hey everyone, thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Next time, we're going to discuss the scariest movies we've ever seen. This is going to be great because it's Halloween coming up and Nick is afraid of everything. Stay tuned.